Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. I'm Nathan Roach, filling in for Brian Berger this week. In segment three, we're going to be joined by Stanton Barrett. He's the car owner and driver and also a Hollywood stuntman. He's going to join us to discuss the world of NASCAR and how a small operation is trying to make it into the garage and onto the track on TV. Stanton's going to join us from Las Vegas where he's racing this weekend. In segment four, Sports Sense. It's baseball season again, folks, and we're going to catch up with Maury Brown from the Biz of Baseball to discuss Major League Baseball spring training, major roster moves, and how they translate into ticket sales. It's been a busy, busy offseason. We're also going to obviously discuss the potential of Roger Clemens' perjury, and if he'll ever suit up in a big league game again, I don't think he will, but we'll find out from Maury. A couple of other notes. Visit the Sports Business Radio blog on sportsbusinessradio.com or download our show for the SBR podcast on demand, sportsbusinessradio.com. You can also visit our new interviews page, It's on our website. It features some of the best interviews we've had over the last year. You definitely want to check them out. If you didn't get a chance to listen to them live, just click on the podcast toolbar, and you'll be able to check out those old interviews. Well, Bobby, there's going to be a new element to March Madness this year. Recently resigned legendary Texas Tech coach Bob Knight will join ESPN as a college basketball studio analyst during the network's coverage of Championship Week presented by Dick's Sporting Goods through the NCAA Tournament. The winningest coach in Division I men's college basketball history, Knight, will begin Wednesday, March 12th, and uh, he'll go all the way through April 7th on ESPN talking about March Madness. I think this is so cool. I love Bobby Knight, and it'll be interesting to see him in the studio. The chairs are pretty heavy in the studio, so he'll probably be able to throw many of those. I love it now how he is a member of the media. After you know all we heard, he couldn't trust reporters, didn't like doing interviews, but now, guess what? Tables have turned. He's not part of the media. No, it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. I mean, he's a pretty animated guy to begin with. So uh, certainly I'm excited about it. And, you know, there was rumors circulating that he was going to go back to Indiana following the Samson incident, and now it doesn't look like it's going to be the case. Is this a long-term stint for Bobby Knight? I guess we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, definitely want to stick around. we got a couple great interviews. We're going to be joined by Stanton Barrett from NASCAR. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. 
Well, it's time for this week's Sports Business Radio Headlines, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit WarsawCenter.com for more information. Headline number one, IMG is going to join CBS in selling NCAA marketing packages. IMG has completed a deal with the NCAA and CBS in which it will sell marketing packages across the NCAA's 88 championships, according to this week's Sports Business Journal. The deal is designed to encourage greater activation against NCAA events and also possibly allow for the sale of smaller packages from companies that are more interested in leveraging rights with retail promotions and less interested in the significant media buys that CBS has sold to NCAA sponsors, which are usually huge. There will be a focus still on selling media, but the hope is that the increased marketing and activation will allow them to bring in some new categories. NCAA corporate championship partners pay an average of $35 million annually, while corporate partners spend between $10 and $12 million. Bobby, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's I think it's a good deal for NCAA. Oh, I totally agree. Any exposure you get on CBS is a great deal to start off. But now that you're bringing in IMG, a company that's proven that it can market Anything. I mean, they could market a NASCAR, a basketball game, a baseball game. You know, they even now have started marketing colleges, and we'll talk about that coming up in headlines. But it's a great deal for them because not only now, if you're a company and you want to get exposure, you're basically getting triple exposure for the price of one. No, it's a great move for even smaller companies. I mean, obviously, big players can afford to do it, but smaller companies, this is a fantastic move. Headline number two, and we'll discuss in more detail baseball with Maury Brown in segment three with the Biz of Baseball, but lots of moving and shaking going on in Wrigleyville recently. I'm a Cubs fan, and the Tribune company owner, Sam Zell, appeared on CNBC's Squawk Box this week to discuss the state of the Cubs and his plan for the team and Wrigley Field. So what he talked about was that he intends to sell the Cubs and intends to sell the Cubs on his time frame and in a manner in which he wants to do it. So he's very arrogant. He doesn't care about impressing any of the Wrigley faithful. He just wants – he's a businessman, so that's what he's doing. Zell said Tribune, the Tribune Co. worked on a structure where they would separate both Wrigley Field and the team. And they, get this, when he was asked about the debate going on about the future of the Cubs and Wrigley, Zell said, excuse me for being sarcastic – but the idea of a debate occurring over what I should do with my asset leaves me somewhat questioning the integrity of the debate. I kind of agree with Zell, and I'm a Cubs fan, but he's a businessman. He's looking to get the deal done. Bobby, what do you think? Listen, the names of Wrigley Field and the Chicago Cubs are synonymous with each other. You can't split them. Now listen, I'm not a Cubs fan. I like the Cubs, but I'm not a fan. You know, I follow baseball. But you can't have the Cubs and Wrigley being a separate entity. It just doesn't work that way. And I agree. Yes, it is Mr. Zell's company. It is his, you know, his assets. But, guys, come on. You cannot separate Wrigley and the Cubs. My question for you, Nathan, is, you know, you have this great, beautiful ivy out along the center field and outer field fences, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Why not put advertising there? Well, they do. Under Armour puts at they they sold spots to Under Armour on the Ivy, and that was a big uproar too. And I think the more and more you commercialize and put sponsorship over the Cubs field, whether it's the Ivy in the outfield, there's a lot of Budweiser ads. I think you're going to upset more and more fans. I, you know, one of the things that Zell said, which I agree with, he says perhaps the Wrigley Co. will decide that after getting it for free for so long, it's time to f- pay for it. Some people have forgot Wrigley is a gum. Exactly, but you know we gotta remember what you know we're talking about here. We're talking about the naming rights to one of the most famous baseball stadiums in the world. Yeah, no, I and I agree, and I, I feel bad saying that as a Cubs fan, but uh, we'll certainly talk a little bit more about that with Maury Brown in segment three. 
Sticking with baseball, Bobby. Well, just as we expected, Roger Clements is not out of the woods yet. The U.S. House Oversight and Government Reform Committee this week sent a letter asking Attorney General Michael Mukasey to investigate whether Clements committed perjury and made knowingly false statements during his February 5th sworn deposition and his February 13th hearing. Rusty Harden, an attorney for Clemens, said of the criminal referral, we've always assumed that there would be a referral if Roger testified differently from the Mitchell report. And that's not all Clemens has on his plate either. Houston Astros owner Drayton McLean is rethinking the personal services contract he had signed with Clemens and may try to void the contract if Clemens is brought up on perjury charges. Clemens, of course, has a 10-year personal services contract with the Astros that will go into effect as soon as he retires. This could be the first of many post-career deals that Clemens loses if he's found guilty of criminal charges. And it's worth noting that, the, that Clemens has made over $100 million in salary from the Astros and Yankees since he turned 40. And as Brian said earlier this week on the Sports Business Radio blog, he's not hurting for money. But, Bobby, he may be hurting for his, re, his freedom at some point. I totally agree. If he is brought up on perjury charges, I got just two quick points here. It's funny how his attorney says, you know, we've always assumed that there would be a referral if Roger testified differently from the Mitchell report. Well, of course. I mean, listen, are they planning? It's almost like the attorney is saying, well, we kind of, you know, knew that they were going to bring perjury charges against him no matter what happens. Oh, well. But the funny thing is, earlier this week, he was down in Houston working out with the Astros, didn't talk to the media, kind of blew him off, but he was working with his son, working with some pitchers in the organization. I find it funny, though, that... They have, you know, they have to rethink the contract. You do not want somebody in your clubhouse with your players that has been, you know, lying to Congress, making false statements. You just don't want that kind of exposure to your younger kids. It doesn't look good for your team, one. And two, you know, it's a big turnoff to a lot of casual fans. No, and I agree. And, you know, I would love to know how much that 10-year personal services contract is worth. I'm sure it's not the hundreds of millions of dollars that he's made playing ball, but I'm, I'm sure it's pretty significant. Headline number four, IRL founder Tony George and Champ Car co-owner Kelvin Kalkoven have held a press conference this week at Homestead Miami Speedway to discuss the unification of the two circuits. Bobby, you're a resident driving expert. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, after a 13-year messy divorce, American Open Wheel Racing has now finally come back together under one series. You had the Holman George family, part of Tony George, who owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Well, way back when... When USAC, the United States Sports Car Club of America, ran the Indy 500, a group of gentlemen came in and said, we want to start running this race under our rules, and that became known as CART way back in the day, which is now Champ Car. Well, 13 years ago, Tony George was like, you know what, listen, it's great that we have this open wheel series, and it's you know a lot of road courses, not a lot of ovals, and not a lot of American drivers. I want to go out and start my own open wheel series. And I have the staple jewel right here on the Indy 500, so we're going to start our own thing. That became the IRL. Since then, IRL and Champ Car have gone two different ways. IRL has had pretty stable funding. They have had some rocky patches. Champ Car has had to file for bankruptcy a couple times, had to change their name. They went from you know CART to Champ Car to Champ Car World Series, a whole number of things. But now that they finally have made the agreement to come back together, it's a good thing for American Open Wheel Racing. And this is what a lot of people believe, you know, let NASCAR get the jump on the popularity. Well, yeah, and the unification will allow companies to get a sponsorship for a fraction of the cost they're getting it for in NASCAR. We all know how big NASCAR is. This will allow companies to come in and still get quite a bit of coverage. And, you know, the funny thing is Champ Car isn't dead yet. They still have one more race they're going to run. They're going to run the Long Beach Grand Prix, which has always been one of the staple races. And the funny thing about the Long Beach Grand Prix is 
it's basically promoted by Cal Coven of Champ Car and a gentleman named Gerald Forsythe who owns a Champ Car team. So what's going to happen is the guys that run Champ Car are going to run the Grand Prix, while the people that are normally in the IRL will be over in Japan running a race the same weekend. They tried to move the race you know, forward or backward, one of the two, so they could allow both races on the schedule. That didn't work. That was a hang-up. You know, we had made the announcement on the blog earlier last week that this was a possibility these two were going to reemerge. Well, now that they have the two series under one, but they're going to run the two races the same weekend, points will stay the same. So if you win that, it's basically like you've won the other race. It's not that big of a deal. The interesting thing, though, is once the uh, Grand Prix is over, Champ Car basically will cease to exist. Now, the teams that are not going to make the move basically fold. And, you know, for the teams that make the move to the IRL, good for them. They'll be able to compete at Indy this year, which is a good thing. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But I know ESPN and ABC have now uh, are now in negotiation for broadcast rights for the rest of the IRL season. Well, certainly a good move for the IRL. And headline number five, Bobby, this is applicable to you. You're an Oregon duck. Talk a little bit about the deal that lets Oregon universities keep their contracts confidential. You know, it's really funny is um, the University of Oregon just signed a multi-million dollar deal with IMG and the Oregon Sports Network. Oregon State just re-upped their contract with Learfield Sports in 2006, which I believe takes it through like 2019, which is great. The Oregon State Attorney General basically came out and said, listen, we normally would let the public see these contracts, but because there are certain things in the contracts that allow the teams to go out and negotiate and the schools to go out and negotiate the new contracts, we can't. You know, there's a, it's a confidentiality agreement basically that says, hey, there are certain things in this contract that you can't see because, you know, it, it gives an unfair advantage to schools that are competing against Oregon and Oregon State. Now, normally I would be down to say, hey, go ahead and just, you know, let the public see how much money, taxpayer money, is going for these things. But because there are certain amounts of certain financial benefits and other things involved, you really don't want to let the public see that because you never know down the road when a new company comes to bid for your media contract, they can throw this back at you saying, hey, well, you know, we think you overbid here. You did this, this, and this. But it's a good thing. So I think that, you know, keeping certain documents hidden from public view is a good thing, Nathan. No, and I, I agree with you. And, and leave it to the state of Oregon to be the one that's the step ahead of everybody else because, of course, I'm biased, but we're very liberal up here and very progressive. Well, coming up in segment three, we're going to be joined by Maury Brown with the Biz of Baseball. He's going to talk to us about all of the offseason trades, the Cubs, of course, and even little Roger Clements, maybe. Stick around. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> 
<laughs> or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is the driver of the number 30 NOS Energy Drink Chevrolet, Stanton Barrett. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, you were in Daytona, which took place at Speed Week. You were attempted to qualify for the Daytona 500. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? We did. We went down there with a NOS number 50 uh, Sprint Cup car. We had a great weekend of uh, Speed Week. We really had a great car for that race to be one of the guys to get in the 500. Uh, in the last practice, we were 10th and leading into the um, school 150 races. We were the commentator's picks to uh, get in the 500 and race our way in. It just was uh, real disappointing, though. We ended up getting crashed by uh, Jacques Villeneuve after just getting up in the fifth spot and uh, dropped back, you know, shuffled back later, and he crashed on his own and took us out of the race. But um, that's the way it goes. So our speed week ended there, uh, but we did run a uh, NOS in a rush bush car that weekend as well. So uh, it was a fun full 10 days of racing. Hey, Stan, it's really interesting. For people that don't follow Nationwide Series and the Cup Series, talk about the qualifying. How do you get into the Daytona 500? The Tower 500 is extremely complicated. There's uh, 35 spots for the cup race guaranteed on points from last year. There is three spots on, on speed or one pass championships. And then the other four spots are broken up into two qualifying races where they take the top two of the non-35 points. And those guys make the race. So it's quite a... Hard to explain on the phone and hard to capture the whole gist of it, but it's definitely complicated and extremely tough to make that race. Exactly. That's what a lot of people were saying. You said that you were the commentator's picks. I watched both of the 125 shootouts. Just talk to me about that experience. You're out on the track with some of the best drivers in the world, especially this year. You have a lot of international guys coming in, a lot of guys from open wheel. What was that like for you? Um, you know, it was good for me because I have a lot of experience there. I've really applied myself learning the draft. I think I have a good feel what the car needs to have or um, help get it to the point where it handles well, well and where you need to carry speed, where that car needs to really work to gain those spots and be a real contender. And I have a great crew chief, uh, Ricky Pearson, and a great crew behind me, and we got the car working the way it needed to. And then uh, just applying things that I understand and have experience with with the draft that a lot of those guys don't have. I mean, I have years and years of experience there uh, at Daytona in a bush, cup, bush car and a cup car previously. So I think we had a real advantage over those guys, and it proved so in the race. It's unfortunate that you know we got cut up, caught up in somebody else's wreck. Uh, but, it, you know, we were ready for it. You know, it, it, it fell in our favor because there were so many people without experience, and those places are – the kind of places that experience definitely is an asset because there's so many little tricks to the drafting and tricks on the track and setup-wise just to understand what you need and to be educated with that and get get it done in practice so you have that for the race. You know, speaking of teams, you're not, you know, you're a car owner yourself. You're having to battle against, you know, the bigger teams such as, you know, Roush Fenway, you know, DEI, you know, teams against that. How do you do it as a smaller team in the Cup and also in the Nationwide Series? It's difficult. Um, it just takes a lot more. You know, I can't say it takes any more work. Those guys have unbelievable resources, and they work their tails off as well. But just putting the right people in place, you know, I have 18 years of, of racing experience at this level, and just applying 
um, my knowledge and attention to the program and how to organize it and run it and pay attention to the details are extremely key. And then you just place the people in the right places and, uh, you know, have a great crew that's taken several, you know, many, many years to develop and now have a really a lot of support from my sponsors with Moss Energy Drink, uh, part of the Coca-Cola family, and they stepped up and have been really great this year. All of my sponsors have participated at a great level and you know it allows us to enhance our program and we get a lot of help you know we're the little guy uh, my crew chief uh, hired almost everybody in the cup garage at one point and i've hired a lot of guys and they've seen how hard we work and we get a lot of information passed down to us that uh, we can apply and we understand how to apply and we just concentrate on the key elements with with our bodies and and get good engine programs and setups that work and uh so it's a mixture of, of getting assistance uh, from teams or people within teams and, and uh, you know, people who want to help out and then our own hard effort and work and experience and knowledge and, you know, just the will and desire to be better and we just go out and do it. Our guest is driver of the number 30 NOS Energy Drink Chevrolet, Stanton Barrett. Stanton, how did you get into stock car racing? My dad has had uh, a lot of racing, not a lot, but a little bit of racing background. He was the first one to break the speed of sound on the ground in the Budweiser Rocket Car in 1979. And then from there, he took Burt Reynolds, Hal Needham, and Paul Newman, which were close friends and people that had interest in racing, and started the uh, Skull Bandit, Burt, Hal, and Paul team in 1981, where he ran for a little bit, and then Harry Gantt started running, and my dad got out of the sport for quite a few years and then dabbled back and forth in it with uh, Hendrix and a few other people. And uh, that kind of introduced me to the sport. He made a lot of great friends, and, and um, that really helped open the door just as far as getting the time and the experience to work with people. I learned uh, Richard Childress let me live with him for a few months during the summer, and I worked at the shop, kind of just learned the ins and outs and then started applying myself at another guy's race shop and where I moved to North Carolina learn about uh, working on the race cars and just put all the money I made doing movies, learn how to market, uh, do marketing and find sponsors and uh, did it the hard way, <laughs> cold called people, wrote letters, uh, you know, really applied myself to learn the business aspect of the sport because I knew that I didn't have very much resource and what I had really came from, you know, the money I made for movies and a, little, and a few friends helping out. Yeah. Um, and like Paul Newman and, and a few other of our friends, Richard, and um, just getting a little bit of help here and there and, and a lot of hard work. So, I mean, most of both my movie career and, and my racing career, uh, I wouldn't have the opportunity to have done it unless it was for my dad and how Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about your experience off the track as a Hollywood stuntman? I think you've been doing it for about 20 years now. That's a, That's a pretty cool job outside the track. Yeah, it's a great job. You know, I'm getting into a little bit more acting and and looking to direct more, and that's it's been a quite a camp. You know, uh, participating in movies for 20 years now, and so uh, that's a long time. And uh, yeah, I've got to do stunts in so many huge films um, and big, crazy, fun stunts, and it's a uh, it's been a great opportunity and something I really enjoy creating and doing. And it's uh, it's a complicated industry as well. I have a lot of great friends that I get to visit with and, and be a part of and, and making movies. Everybody enjoys watching movies. So entertainment is uh, very close to my heart as well as 
auto racing and something that I'm very lucky to get to do and keep doing and work my tail off to be able to do it. What are some of the movies that you've been in that uh, all of us have seen? Oh, I've been in all the Jurassic Parks and uh, Spider-Man's Nighty Professor, Cradle of the Grave, um, Batman, to Gods and Generals, Patriot. That's an impressive Bat- resume. There's a, a vast amount of movies on my resume. I've got to work in all the biggest and fun TV series, um, past and present. So I get, get pretty lucky get to work a lot. Hey, Stan, really quick, what what has a bigger paycheck, the movies or the driving? <laughs> well, so my uh, driving career, I've had to spend all the money I've ever made doing anything else to be able to race. So um, with some great sponsors this year, I hope uh, I'll be able to make money doing both. Now, the, the other drivers uh, that are more famous and, and have big rides, they definitely make far more than you'd ever do doing <laughs> stunts. But I enjoy it, and I pays my bills and allows me to do the things I love to do, and it's, uh, that's it. Well, Stan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and uh, best of luck the, res- uh, the rest of the season. Well, thanks for having me. Hopefully we can be on the show again and uh, educate people more about racing and business and have some fun. Absolutely. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. Well, my guest is Maury Brown. He's with the Biz of Baseball, and baseball season is right around the corner, just a couple weeks away. Maury, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Maury, I'm a Cubs fan, so so the first question I want to ask is there's a lot going on with the latest of the sale of the Cubs. Can you talk about uh, the Wrigley Field naming rights and the whole sale of the Cubs? Well, you know, Sam Zell purchased the Tribune Company, and the Tribune Company currently owns the Cubs. And, you know, Sam Zell is not emotionally attached to the, to the Chicago Cubs, much like probably you are and most baseball fans are. Zell simply sees it as an asset and an asset that he really doesn't want to hold on to. And so what he's probably done is brought up a bit of heresy. He's decided that he's going to split the sale of the Cubs uh, and Wrigley Field apart. And when you really break those two assets apart, you know, it, it devalues it to a certain extent for um, any potential owners that are looking into it because, really, Wrigley Field has probably not been maximized to the fullest. And Zell, of course, is thinking about it purely from a monetary perspective. He can probably get a lot of money by selling – Wrigley Field to the state of Illinois, and they would control it, and then they're looking to doing a naming rights deal, which then could be allowed in part 
uh, with rental payments from the ownership to do capital improvements to Wrigley Field. Well, the problem here is, of course, that ownership will be making payments, rent payments, to a facility they don't own. So they don't, they don't see any value, you know, really from an ownership perspective on the, on the investments to it. But from Zell's perspective, I mean, he was on CNBC's Squawk Box on Tuesday, and he said, we intend to sell the Cubs, and we intend to sell the Cubs on our time frame and in a manner in which we choose to do so, which really shows that Zell isn't concerned about the, the approval process for an ownership group by Major League Baseball. Baseball moves on a much slower pace than Sam Zell wants to. He's, you know, he's got a lot of debt to pay down on the Tribune deal. I think it's something like on the order of $13 billion. So by him selling and separating the two pieces off, he's going to get more money than he would if he tried to sell it off in total. And I think Zell wants to do this sooner rather than later. I believe his payments, uh, his first payments on Tribune Company are due shortly. And, you know, this is about paying down debt. Other than just the disappointment from baseball purists like myself, how will the average fan see the effects of, of this taking place? I mean, will we see anything? If we go to a game, what will we see? Well, I don't know if you're going to see anything too terribly dramatic involved. I mean, if a naming rights deal is done, look, as a secondary naming rights deal, I can't think of one that would be any worse for a potential company. I mean, it's going to have to be something like, you know, your company name at Wrigley Field. It will always be known as Wrigley Field. I don't think that there's any way – shape or form that you're going to ever get anybody to think of it any other way but you know if capital improvements are made to Wrigley Field then it's going to be you know a situation where it may be an improvement maybe for the fans you know but like I said there's nothing to say that you know the state of Illinois is going to treat it um, any differently than an ownership group might I mean you know for all intents and purposes it may come down to an idea to where uh, the state of Illinois this authority that they're going to sell it to may one day decide that they're going to sell it to ownership. I mean, it's been owned, you know, by uh, the team for a considerable period of time. And so, um, you know, selling it maybe as a profit for ownership might be in the works. You know, now I have no um, word definitively on that, but it's certainly out there as a, as a possibility. Do we have any idea who maybe the front runners are? I mean, we've talked about Mark Cuban. I, I would love it if Mark Cuban won the Cubs. Who are some of the front runners right now that uh, we can expect maybe to, to own the team or maybe even the field as well in the future? Well, you know, I mean, Mark Cuban would be great. You know, he would certainly give fans something to cheer about, but I, he just doesn't fall within the realm of, of what uh, Bud Sealing and the ownership brethren, I think, want to have in there. Now, the guy that will probably wind up with him is a guy named John Canning Jr., uh, who's from the Chicago area. He's, he's been tied to baseball. He's a minority owner of the White Sox right now, so he'd have to sell and divest himself of that ownership group. He's part of what's called Dearborn Partners. He has quite a bit of money. Um, there has been uh, talk of quite a few others. There's been talk of a billionaire in Mexico possibly being uh, involved right now. His name escapes me right now, but he's like one of the fourth richest men in the world. And, you know, so, but Canning seems to be the guy that really everybody is focused on. I mean, he's somebody that's known Bud Selig for a long time. He really fits the profile really well for baseball. And so now, I mean, it's a matter of, look, the prospectus book that's given to all the clubs, the book on, the valuation of, of the assets involved around the sale haven't even been delivered to any of the potential bidders on the deal. So, you know, making this deal happen under Sam Zell's timeline is going to be really aggressive. What is the timeline? Are we looking at something maybe this year or is it farther down the road? Well, you know, Zell wants to get it done. You know, he'd like, he wanted it done before the season started. Okay. And, and that doesn't look like that's going to happen. If it got, if it happened by the all-star break, it would be, I think almost a miracle. I think that, you know, realistically, um, I think that there's a possibility that, you know, it could happen 
well into this season and possibly maybe into, you know, sometime in the off season coming up. I'm sure that's what baseball would like. I mean, there's just so many questions around this deal, you know, how it's going to impact them. It makes it very difficult. You know, Wrigley Field may be sold off, but how the Cubs sale goes may take a little bit longer. My guest is Maury Brown with the Biz of Baseball. Maury, I could sit and talk about the Cubs all day long, but it's been such a busy offseason. Which teams were the most successful at retooling their rosters during the offseason? I mean, we talk about Santana and the Mets, but uh, who did well as well? Well, you have to look at the Tigers. I mean, you know, getting Dontrell Willis and Miguel Cabrera, I mean, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, ticket sales have gone right through the roof of the Tigers as of late. Um, so you certainly have to look at them. I mean, if they're not a favorite right now in that division, you know, I don't know who is. And they, they may actually give the Red Sox a run for their money. So they're certainly somebody that's really exciting. You know, the Bedard deal for the Mariners is certainly interesting. You know, the, the, they were under a lot of pressure to do something. Their pitching staff was really overextended last year. And Bill Bavese has been under a lot of pressure to make a move. And that was a very complex deal with the Orioles. It took a while to get done, but it did get done. Um, you know, Torrey Hunter with the Angels is certainly something, you know, sitting there with Vladimir Guerrero and basically sitting behind him in the, in the order. Really, you know, they were already looking like, a, you know, a favorite for the AL West. And they look like they they positioned themselves to not only win the AL West, but to try and do more in the postseason. So, you know, but the most interesting one is probably one that hasn't happened yet. And there's been talk about Barry Bonds possibly going to the Tampa Bay Rays. And that would be really something. That may be the deal that everybody talks about. And that would certainly be, you know, it would improve them from a slugging perspective. And it would certainly give everybody a lot to talk about. Yeah, well, and probably bring a lot of people to the stands, uh, good or bad. I will, we'll have to see how that works out for them. What, what free agent signing was the biggest bargain for team this year? Well, you know, that's a really good question because, you know, there, some of them are prospects that get signed. You know, there, there are certainly deals like that. Troy Tulowitzki was signed, and that we can get into that in a bit. But I think that probably the Andrew Jones deal to the Dodgers or Torrey Hunter to the Angels, you know, um, Jones didn't have an ex- a very good year, so he's probably in a position to rebound. And if you look at his average – uh, contract rate, you know, it's looking at it was a $36.2 million deal over two years, you know, that comes out to about $18.1 million. You know, they, you know, in the face of the Pierre deal that they did, the Dodgers did prior, it doesn't look very, you know, it looks like they made a mistake prior, but Jones may be something good. And as I mentioned before, Hunter in the lineup um, behind Vladimir Guerrero in front of him really gives them some, some serious power and, and buffets and basically cushions Vladimir Guerrero. So I think that those were probably two of the better deals that we've seen. Well, we talk about ROI all the time on this show, and so and, and we usually overanalyze it. Who do you think is the most pay or most overpaid free agent this season? Well, that's got to be the return on investment's got to be Carlos Silva at forty-eight million dollars for the Mariners. You know, it was a forty-eight million four-year deal. You know, he had a four-one-nine ERA last year and a five-nine-four the year before. He's twenty-eight. You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, the, the Bedard deal looks really good. The Silva deal didn't make a lot of sense to, to most people. It just seems like an awful lot of money to throw at a guy that just doesn't look like he's all that great on paper. Hey, Maury, talk about the Dodgers a little bit. They got Jones, like you said, and they also picked up a new manager in Joe Torre. Have we seen any type of ticket sales increase with those guys? Well, they have, you know, but it, a lot of this has to do, I think, with the whole 50th anniversary celebration going on with the Dodgers right now. I mean, the Dodgers are celebrating their 50th year being in Los Angeles, and they've just done a, a spectacular job in marketing themselves. You know, they had a, a float in the Rose Parade and basically had guys like Vince Scully out there. You know, they went and got Joe Torian, 
And from a perspective, you know, it's not a player on the field, but as an investment basically in a face for the, for the franchise, you know, True Torrey is, is one of the classiest guys in all of baseball. So I think that there's a lot for people to get excited about, you know, and it's the Dodgers, you know, they're year in and year out. They do really well, but this 50th anniversary deal in tangent with the signing of Jones, the bringing over of Joe Torrey and the game that they're going to have in the LA Coliseum, this exhibition game is really something that's, that's got a lot of people excited in Los Angeles. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what, what are they doing for the 50th anniversary? They have anything planned? And I mean, this, this Coliseum game is, is going to be huge. Can you give us some of the details on that as well? Well, so the, when the Dodgers first arrived in Los Angeles, they played in the L.A. Coliseum before uh, Dodger Stadium was constructed in Chavez Ravine. And the, some of the largest attended games, the largest attended game in Major League Baseball history was played with the Yankees there in the 50s. So they're going to do this as kind of a, a throwback thing. They're going to play in the L.A. Coliseum. They sold out 90,050 seats in under an hour for this game. And they just added another 25,000 standing room only seats at a lowered price. So, I mean, they, they could ostensibly crush the all-time attendance record at well over 100,000, you know, close to 110,000 people for a baseball game. It would be, it's going to be absolutely incredible. So the game's on the 29th. Um, it's all for a charitable organization called Think Cure. Um, they think that they can raise close to a million dollars, if not more, um, for this game, so it's really going to be something else. I mean, it, the the if you haven't seen the seating configuration, you know certainly people have seen USC play there or seen stuff from the Olympics. You know, it was never really designed for for baseball, so it's just a really unique um, looking field when when it's sitting there with the the, uh, the diamond put on it. So it's going to be something to see. You know, the fact that the Red Sox are playing, they won the World Series, and it's the Dodgers and all the history. It's really going to be spectacular. Well, I think we can expect ticket sales to be up in L.A. Can you talk about some of the other markets who have uh, who have signed big-name players like Santana with the Mets? What are their ticket sales like, and what teams might we see huge ticket sales this season? Well, I mean, if you you, you know, in, the, in terms of the Mets, they're looking at about a 22% increase from what they had in the year prior. Now, these are, you know, full-season uh, equivalents right now. These are season tickets. They haven't had their single-game – tickets go on sale yet but um the diamondbacks have seen an increase in attendance you know the past two seasons and and last year they sold 12,471 full season ticket equivalents and they've already passed that fsc number and it set a goal of 15,000 so they're certainly you know looking well ahead and this is you know the heron trade you know to get him the run that they made last year in the nl west and doing exceptionally well you know that's they're certainly looking good the Indians have exceeded uh, 1.3 million total um, full-season ticket sales this this uh, year already, and that was more than they did up until April of last year. So their full-season tickets are up 20%, eclipsing last year's total all the way you know through January, and group sales are up 39%. So they're doing really well. The Phillies report that um, their full-season equivalents are at about 19.6. And that's compared to 17,100 last year, and that's a 15% increase. And uh, the Angels are saying that they're running at about greater than 90% renewal rate on their on their season seats, and they were at 82% last year. So these are some of the teams. You know, you're looking. You know, we're hearing a lot about this recession, and you know whether it, you want to say it's a recession, whether the president thinks it's a recession or not, or whether we're coming into one or possibly skirting the edges of one. You know, the consumer spending has been you know, down quite a bit, and we're just seeing inflation rates go up. And when you see some of this stuff, now granted, 
a lot of these deals, you know, are involving teams that are winning, you know, or did well last season. You know, I, I mentioned the, I hadn't even mentioned the Tigers, who are seeing an incredible increase due to the Willis and Cabrera deals. This really kind of flies in the face of conventional thinking, and, and it really comes back to that thing that when it comes to sports, people are somehow willing. They may not go out and make a capital investment in a new car or go do some high-ticket thing, but they'll probably find a way to get together with friends and, and buy full-season tickets. Well, certainly there's a lot to look forward to. Real quickly, more. I'm going to ask you, who's your pick to win it all this year? And for the fantasy baseball players that are listening to the show, what player would you recommend picking up? Well, I'm going to have to go with, and this is going to sound very you know, bland, but I, I really have to go with uh, the Red Sox again. And, and the reason for that is it wasn't just a case of the Red Sox having you know, a bunch of free agents. I mean, they certainly have a, a very large payroll. It's like $155 million, second behind the, the Yankees. But they really have a whole bunch of great prospects, whether you're talking about Pedroia or whether you're talking about Ellsbury or Bursholz, who's coming up now, or John Lester. They really are stocked, and I mean, that's got to really scare the daylights out of them. The only kind of bad mark that goes against the Red Sox right now is a Kurt Schilling injury, and so you have Bartolo Colon being signed to a minor league deal. That certainly, you know, whether Colon, I, I would think Colon will make the major league roster, and he kind of fills a void. He's not certainly the, the guy that we think of prior, but he could be, and so there's certainly somebody that you look at. From a fantasy perspective, you know, that's a really good question. I would have to sit there and, and mention either Jacob. I want to say Jacoby Ellsbury is the guy, you know, he, or Pedroia. I mean, they're not dark horses anymore, but I certainly would look at, from position players, those two guys as young guys look like they're going to be really good. And I think that you're just going to continue to see them to grow. Um, they, they certainly have the ability to um, turn into major stars, and as young as they are, I think that they're just going to bloom after what we saw in the postseason. Well, Maury, we really appreciate you joining us. We'll certainly catch up with uh, you deeper in the baseball season. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. Welcome back to Sports Business Radio. And I don't know about you, Bobby, but I'm really excited about going to see Will Ferrell in the movie Semi-Pro this weekend. We've seen a unique way of product endorsement with Ferrell's character, Jackie Moon. As Jackie Moon, as Jackie Moon Ferrell has been endorsing products like Bud Light, Old Spice, and was recently featured in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. I've said it over and over. I love the Bud Light ad. But, Bobby, right here in Portland, Wyden and Kennedy did something pretty cool or got to do something cool. You know, they were the ones who were responsible for the whole entire, I believe it's like four to six ads of Old Spice. 
I mean, each one of them are different. They're very funny, as are the Budweiser ones. But uh, earlier this week, Wyden and Kennedy got a private screening of the movie just for writing the commercials. Not even, you know, sure it pitches the movie a bit, but it's basically about product endorsement here. Not really the movie, just, hey, okay, we're going to take the character from the movie. It's like drawing, I don't know, Chewbacca out of Star Wars and having him pitch a product. But same thing. So they got a private screening. I thought that was pretty cool. No, I thought it was great. And it's not just in ads either. I mean, he has been everywhere. Like I mentioned, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition with Heidi Klum. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's hysterical. And also this week, I logged on to ESPN and saw that he challenged Bill Walton to a game of horse as Jackie Moon. And get this. He beat Bill Walton. I was surprised. Will Ferrell can actually shoot a basketball pretty decently. Well, we know he's a huge sports fan. We see him on the sideline every weekend for USC football. I've even seen him, you know, occasionally in the Galen Center for USC basketball. But it doesn't surprise me. The guy's everywhere. Yeah, no, he's all over the place. I love him. I'm going to check it out, and I'll give you an update of it next week. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Obviously, we want to thank our guest, Stanton Barrett from NASCAR. Also want to thank Maury Brown for giving us a little insight into the baseball season. Maury from the Biz of Baseball, of course. And the show staff, Brian Berger, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Of course, our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, which sounds excellent right now. Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. ProTrade.com and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week by going to the Sports Business Radio page, click on the podcast button, and also go to the interviews page, catch up on some of the old interviews. We've got some great interviews on there from David Stern, Mark Steinberg, Robert Sarver, so you definitely want to check that out. Well, I'm Nathan Roach. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. Have a fantastic week. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. That's why you're a smart business person. (laughs) Or at sportsbusinessradio.com.